Coronavirus New Zealand, a daily stuff podcast. I've got to warn you, I may not be my usually fantastically prepared self today. A dog ate my glasses. What? That is the lamest excuse, Adam. No, no, seriously. While I was in the shower this morning, Maggie the dog found my reading glasses on the bed and, um, you know, chewed them. Anyway, uh, welcome to Coronavirus NZ for Tuesday, March the 31st. I'm Adam Dudding. And I'm Eugene Bingham. My glasses are fine. We bring you the latest news as well as the quirky and interesting things about life under lockdown. You know, since lockdown, mostly peace has broken out, politically speaking. But you know the politicians want to get back to it. During today's Epidemic Response Committee, that's the big select committee that scrutinises the government's COVID-19 response. During that, Simon Bridges and Grant Robertson got a few practice shots in. Apparently Bridges said he didn't have Robertson's cell phone, and Robertson said, well, I've got yours, to which Bridges said, you never text me, Grant. As our gallery reporter Thomas Coughlin put it, love the passive aggression. Politics is back. Meanwhile, the Prime Minister is dealing with important matters of state. At the 3pm briefing, she noted there had been a great number of complaints to the new Pricewatch reporting email about the price of cauliflowers. Later in the show, we're taking a deep dive into the chemistry of soap with AUT chemistry professor Alan Blackman. But first, what's happened today? There are 61 new cases, which takes our total to 708. 14 people are in hospital and there are two in intensive care beds, but they're stable. Jacinda Ardern says the most affected age range of COVID-19 currently is 20 to 29-year-olds. They are our vector for transmission, she said. The global death toll is now over 40,000. Australia has recorded its 20th death. And in Asia, many countries which have got control of the virus are shutting their borders to prevent a new wave of infections. And in New Zealand, there are now seven significant clusters all over the country from Auckland to Southland. Hannah Martin is a health reporter for Stuff in the Auckland newsroom and joins us now. How are you going, Hannah? I'm well, thanks, Eugene. Hey, um, I have been at home for a couple of days now, which is new to me. I'm starting to feel what this uh, lockdown is all about, really, having been in the office all of last week. We're looking at clusters, of course, and we've heard about them for months. You know, there was the Wuhan market in China and South Korea. There was that church, mm. Washington State, there was a rest home. And now these New Zealand clusters that were all really interested in. Why are they so important? Yeah, sure. So clusters are are basically little outbreaks of the virus. Um, And we've heard today that a number of clusters have sprung up around the country, the largest of which is in Auckland, a high school with 50 confirmed cases now. The idea is that health authorities need to identify close contacts to get a better control of the spread of the virus uh, within communities. The ministry defines a cluster as how many cases? Up until today, up until Wednesday, we were getting information about clusters, which were sort of four or five cases or more. Uh, as of today, they are now looking at just 10 cases. So those are 10 either confirmed or probable. Mm. Um, as of today, there are seven significant clusters around the country. And the biggest one, as you say, is this cluster at Marist College in Auckland. What can you tell us about it? There have been uh, 50 cases linked to Marist, which is a, a Catholic girls' school, uh, including... Uh, about a dozen students, uh, 14 or so staff members, and uh, even the principal. We understand that a teacher may have been the first confirmed case, but how things have happened from here on in, we aren't too sure at this stage. Marist was one of the first clusters in the country, uh, alongside the cattle conference that was uh, in Queenstown. The number of cases that uh, Marist has seen in that cluster 
continues to climb pretty rapidly, particularly over the last few days. Uh, from Friday, I believe they were at about 16 cases, to Monday, just after the weekend, that had tripled to about 47. They're obviously still interested in these smaller clusters, even though they're not reporting them, because every case needs to be hunted down, as it were, the contacts mm. traced. But what's this public health interest in clusters as opposed to just the news interest in them? Uh, well, I, I guess you could look at, say, um, the cluster of cases in Matamata, which has been linked to this St. Patrick's Day celebration a couple of weeks ago. You know, those people attending that party would have had no idea um, that they were in touch with someone who was, you know, potentially infectious. So from a, a public health standpoint, knowing uh, where these clusters are, um, knowing an event or a, a school in the case of, of Marist um, will help people, I suppose, who are potentially developing symptoms now to to know that they potentially have, have been exposed. Things can go wrong, can't they? You know, we saw today that the Ministry of Health had apologised for releasing the names of several people who tested positive for COVID-19 or enabled them to be identified anyway. Mm. So they're having to keep information pretty tight. It's, it's, a, it's a funny balance, isn't it? Yeah, that, that balance was a word that they used today um, that the Director of, of Public Health for the Ministry used today. She said that obviously there is a public health interest in, in reporting these clusters and getting the information out there, but still being really mindful of, of the fact that this is people's privacy uh, and these are people who are unwell through essentially no fault of their own. Um, so it, it does seem like it's a, a bit of a delicate a balancing act at the moment. Thank you very much, Hannah Martin. Thank you. We've got an email to our new email address, viruspod at stuff.co.nz. Someone called Amy took the time to put pen to paper. It's not pen to paper, isn't it? Finger to keyboard to say she was enjoying the show. So that's very nice. Thanks, Amy. But I think there's more room in the inbox rather than just that one email. So we have a cunning plan. Yeah. It's, it's a bit of an experiment, so bear with us. But so far, we've mostly talked about people inside New Zealand, but we're really interested to know how coronavirus is playing out for Kiwis overseas as well. And we thought we'd ask them to get in touch. So proper radio stations have phone lines and those sorts of things, fancy arrangements where people can leave voicemails, but we're more email kind of operation. So here's the plan. If you are a Kiwi overseas listening to this or being told about it by someone in New Zealand who emails you, or I don't really mind how you find out. Anyway, record a little voice memo for us. So just a minute or two would be great. Tell us your name, precisely where you are on the planet, and what's going on for you. Are you in lockdown? Who are you with? Are you still in work? Are you still out in the community? What can you hear out of your window if you are in lockdown? And probably most importantly, are you okay? Have you got COVID-19? Then get this audio clip and email it to us, viruspod at stuff.co.nz. We'll have a listen, and if everything goes to plan, we'll play them on the show, or bits of them, or lots of them all cut together. I don't know. We'll see how it goes. Go on. That email from Amy, thanks again, Amy, is, is looking lonely. Feel free to tweet us, too. I'm at Eugene underscore Bingham, and Adam is at a Dudding. Right. What else? Uh, oh, yeah, I was just thinking, we, we know lockdown's stalling the economy. And of course, you know, the economy is just a, a, a fancy concept, a word to describe lots of people and what they do with their money and their, their things and their labour. 
Um, so, of course, this economic slowdown it is all about you know businesses folding and wages falling and jobs ending. And, and you see it in the news, you know it's real, don't doubt it. But even for us you know, folks in the media, there's this weird difference between seeing something in the world and, and reporting on it, reading about it, and then just when it just gets that little bit closer to home. So just in the last couple of days, I've started to, to hear through the, the, the family and friends grapevine about, you know, that person who's now on 80% hours or that a freelance friend whose biggest contract is, has just been canned. Yeah, rel- relatives and friends who, who, whose hours are being cut or sitting at home because they're tradies. What, like plumbers? Uh, yeah, no, a good one if you ever need one, Adam. And then you can scale it back up to the world of news and the economy. You know, Grant Robertson, Finance Minister and the Treasury of today said that they're expecting unemployment numbers to hit double digits. For just a bit of context, during the 2008 global financial crisis, unemployment hit 6.7%. We've kept hearing the Prime Minister, no less, saying we need kindness. And of course we do. But the question when we're all cooped up inside is, how do we display that? In the Italian city of Naples, people, and this is from The Guardian, have been filling bread baskets with hot and cold food and lowering them from their balconies down to homeless people. Pretty practical way. That just feels very European, doesn't it? Putting food oh. in a basket and putting on a rope and lowering it out your window. Very sound, Sounds very Italian. But I was thinking about that as well. So, yeah, kindness means um, do not shout at people at the supermarkets, which apparently is something that's been happening a bit. Do not be racist to people at supermarkets. Again, something that is reportedly happening a bit. In my day-to-day, I guess there's kindness in the, the choices you make about who you give way to on the pavement. But there's still, I don't know, I think there are quite a, quite a lot of people who, particularly people who've got time on their hands because they're unable to work, just thinking, well, it would be nice to be doing something. And, you know, you can't get along to a soup kitchen. We really don't don't need to be handing out virus by the ladleful. So I don't know. It, it's perhaps that's something we should try and figure out. Mm. No, you, you had a, a, a phrase of this pent up kindness. I think that's right. Sports fans, not you, Adam. Not looking at you. Obviously, there's not much sport going on at the moment. Marble racing, of course. But football fans, fear not. Belarus is here to save you. A stuff story today pointing out that the professional football competition of that Eastern European country carries on. Now, okay, you might not think that Belarus has got much to offer. It hasn't been in the Champions League, for instance. doesn't appear in those glamour competitions. But the domestic league of the country might be the thing that you have to watch. Now, this has all happened because Belarus has taken an interesting approach to coronavirus. Belarus's President Alexander Lukashenko, who's been in office since 1994, told his people they should drink 50 mils of vodka a day and regularly head to the sauna if they want to ward off the deadly virus. Just before we get to uh, FPIN... What's FPIN? Come on, famous people in fiction news. Uh, Okay, yeah. Anyway, just before that, a quick update from the world of idiotic nonsense on Twitter. I bring you this tweet, which has been liked... Only 12,000 times and retweeted 2,500 times. Someone called Gibran Salim has said, Your quarantine nickname is how you feel right now, plus the last thing you ate. My name is Sick Bat. You know, you've got to join in with these things. Uh, lunch was very recent, and I can report that my quarantine nickname is Overfull Prawn. I'm stressed out, scone. It's got a ring to it, actually. It has got a ring to it. Stressed out. I like that. Let's stick with mm. that. And on to the main event today in our regular Famous People Infection News. 
Denis Pritsenko has got it. Okay, so we need to explain. He's not famous, but he's awfully closely connected to someone who is. He's the doctor who gave Russian President Vladimir Putin a tour of Moscow's main coronavirus hospital last week and media report that neither man was wearing protective equipment. That's pretty much on brand for Putin. This is the shirtless horse riding, bear wrestling, uh, generally um, awesome action figure president that, that Russia has come to love and know and fear when they're a journalist because they might get killed. To the pandemic playlist, it's... Um, who's doing this? You. you. Oh, me. Oh. <laughs> oh, I can, I can, I can. Okay. All right. The pandemic playlist, a Broadway musical offering today, no less. That's the Marsh family from Kent in the UK who adapted Les Miserables' One Day More with a coronavirus twist, uploaded it to Facebook, and it's gone viral. Who doesn't love a musical? Me. Alan Blackman is a professor of chemistry at AUT. He knows a lot about molecules and stuff. We have him on the line. So, Alan, I was browsing one of your old articles, um, something with a snappy title, Efficient Photocatalytic Hydrogen Production of Water from a Cobalt 3 Tree. <laughs> it's a macrocyclic catalyst. It made me think you could possibly answer this question, which is, Alan Blackman, what is soap? Um, damn good question, that. In a nutshell, you might call soap uh, the sodium salt of a fatty acid, uh, particularly a long-chain fatty acid. In nature, there are things called fatty acids, and they exist in both plants and animals. And these are um, molecules which have a particular group of atoms on them, uh, which we chemists call a functional group. And um, that is a carboxylic acid, and that's made up of one carbon, two oxygens, and a hydrogen atom all bonded together. Um, so if we take these fatty acids and we treat them with an alkali... Uh, what that does is to basically cleave them and we end up with the salts of these fatty acids. And in molecular terms, what these look like is that you have a thing called a carboxylate group at one end and that's got a negative charge. And then you've got a whole big long chain of carbon atoms acting as a sort of a tail. And these carbon atoms sort of go in um, essentially even numbers, 16, 18, 20, whatever. But that's the important thing is that you've got this big, long, what we call organic tail attached to a charged, what we call, I guess, a head group. In my mind, I'm visualizing something like a sort of a spermy kind of thing, a head and a tail. Yeah? Yes, I wasn't going to use that analogy, but you've gone there, so why not? Yeah, yeah. In real-world terms, how do, how do I make the soap? What are the ingredients? Well, you can uh, get animal fat, you can get olive oil, and all you've got to do is basically stew it up with uh, a decent base, and what's usually used in uh, this is uh, sodium hydroxide. Why is soap so good at killing viruses? When you talk about killing viruses, I think the general consensus is that viruses aren't actually alive. Um, but what we can do to viruses is basically sort of um, unpack them, sort of dismember them. Now, a virus is surrounded by essentially what is a blob of grease. The fancy term for this is a lipid bilayer. Now, lipids are molecules 
that are mostly made of these big, long carbon chains. Okay, so they've got these big, long tails. And what we find is that lipids tend to what we call self-assemble. And so these big tails get together with each other because they like being together. And so they, through an amazing thing called, as I say, self-assembly, um, this essentially encompasses the virus with this big blob of grease. And that makes it impervious to just straight water, okay? So it sort of acts as a, as a, as a barrier between the inside and the outside of the virus. So water doesn't do a damn thing to it. But if you start using soap, then soap just causes the whole thing to break down. The virus spills out its insides and then it's become inactivated. So that's essentially the way that soap works. It's this big, long carbon chain tail on the um, soap that interferes with the self-assembly of the, the lipid bilayer. So that gets in amongst this um, amazingly self-organized construction of molecules, and that gets in there and it just basically rips it apart. So it, it just removes that outer shell of the virus and it leaves the inside open to attack and then everything just sort of falls out and your virus becomes inactivated. So I've got a bit of virus on my hands. Yep. I run it under a tap. Yep. Are, are you saying that nothing happens? It just, it's, it stays there. It needs the soap to be able to, to rip it apart, to be able to, to destroy it. it. It does. So one thing that the virus can obviously do that it's got this sort of greasy coating is that it's going to look for other greasy coatings to um, sort of sit on. So obviously our skin is predominantly organic. And so therefore you would expect that the virus is going to stick to our skin quite well. Uh -huh. And so this is where, again, the whole soap thing comes in. You are disrupting that organic barrier around the virus. So in doing so, that's going to destroy it and that's going to get it off your hands. Water temperature. What's optimal? Does it matter? Temperature, I would say uh, the hotter the better, generally because uh, chemical processes <laughs> 99,000 times out of 100,000 or whatever, uh, go more rapidly at higher temperatures. So yeah, I would I would go with the hot water rather than the cold. Drying hands, is that important? And what's the difference between using the filthy towel on the bathroom rack, um, a hand dryer, or a paper towel from a dispenser? Um, well, apparently the worst thing that you can do, so I've read these days, is to use the air dryers because all of that does is blows all of these particles off your hand and covers the surroundings, I guess. So don't do that for goodness sake. Probably steer away from the dirty old towels and I guess go with the nice clean uh, paper towels, I would guess. So that's soap. That's fine when you're at home and you've got access to your sink and your soap. Hand sanitizer is the thing that we're using out in the in the world if, if we're going to the supermarket and so on. Does that disassemble the virus in the same way as soap? It, it does, but it does it less effectively. So again, you're looking at um, this whole carbon chain makeup of the surroundings of the virus. So whereas soap, the, the constituents in soap have carbon chains around about 18 carbons long, alcohol, which is the basis of your hand sanitizer, ethanol has only got a carbon chain of two carbon atoms. So now it can't really get in to that lipid bilayer as well as longer chain um, carbon species can. So ethanol will do the trick um, and it will do it through the same mechanism uh, as soap does. It's just that it's not as 
efficient. Most of us are staying home, but we have to go out occasionally. We're not touching surfaces if we can avoid it, but we're aware that they do represent some risk. What do you know about how and why viruses survive on different surfaces for different amounts of time? The virus certainly lives for different times on different surfaces. And it does appear that things like plastics and stuff, it can survive quite a long time on, uh, as opposed to things like uh, copper surfaces where um, it lasts for a relatively short time. So it will all have to do with the types of interactions between the coating on the virus surface and the surface that it's actually um, sticking to. Things like cardboard and stuff like that, what seems to happen uh, if it sits on cardboard, it actually desiccates. So in other words, it, it, it loses water and that sort of causes the whole thing to uh, open up as well and sort of inactivates the virus. So a lot of people around the world are doing a lot of work on this, as you can imagine, uh, right at the moment. And um, I'm sure we'll have more sort of definitive answers in the not too distant future. Alan, as a, as a chemist, is there anything about the COVID-19 virus that you, you look at and you go, wow, okay, that explains why it's so successful, why it's doing what it's doing to the world? You can't help but admire it, really, because um, it is a, a wonderful example of this, this concept um, in chemistry that we call self-assembly, where essentially uh, a whole host of different molecules just, I'll say magically, but it's not magic, just basically get together in exactly the right shape and the right form and um, form this remarkable, huge, on the chemical scale anyway, uh, chemical structure, because that's all the virus is. It's just a whole bunch of atoms that are bonded together to form molecules, and these molecules then get together and self-organize into these amazing Nasty buggers, I guess, for, for want of a better term. This is chemistry writ large, really, I guess, this whole virus thing. Alan Blackman from AUT, Professor of Chemistry, thank you very much for your uh, detailed molecular explanation of what we're doing when we rub our hands together and make all those little bit of foamy bubbles and so on. It's been most educational and very useful. And who knows, it's probably going to save lives. Thank you very much, Alan. That's the Coronavirus NZ podcast for Wednesday, April the 1st. I'm Adam Dudding. He's Eugene Bingham. Thank you to Hannah Martin, Professor Alan Blackman, Alex Liu, Catherine George, Patrick Crudson and Carol Hirschfeld. We are on the Stuff website, stuff.co.nz, and all the podcast apps. So go ahead, subscribe. And in case you didn't hear it the first three times we said it, our email address is viruspod at stuff.co.nz. Kiwis abroad, remember, go make that voice memo and send it to us today. Au revoir. <laughs>